0: Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, we're joined by Connor Boyack. He is the president of the Libertas Institute, a free market think tank in Utah, and also the author of the children's book series, The Tuttle Twins, which teaches kids the fundamentals of freedom. We have a great discussion about the work that the Libertas Institute is doing in Utah, about their recent victory helping to legalize medical marijuana in their state, and how others can use their work as a blueprint. Connor explains the principles behind his work and why he decided to write the Tuttle Twins series of children's books, which are all based upon classic works of freedom. We also talk about the pros and cons of getting involved in politics as a libertarian, how education is a key to helping others see the value of freedom, and why persuasion and not force are the ultimate means of securing personal liberty for all. I exercise my personal freedom by consuming Kratom. Kratom is a natural plant supplement which I use to help manage my chronic pain. The only Kratom I use is from naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics, spelled O R G A N I X.com. You can use the promo code ChronicallyHuman20 to get 20% off your next order. Thanks for listening and let us know what you think. Welcome to the show, Connor. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Excellent. I'm became familiar with your work from my brother. He actually bought some of the Tuttle Twins books. So Mm -hmm. I definitely want to, he bought those for my other brother. Who's got two young kids. So I want to dive into that today, but I also want to talk about the Libertas Institute and your experience in the Utah legislature this year and about what it looks like out in Utah, as far as the fight for freedom goes pushing back against the state, intruding, intruding into the lives of individuals. But before we get into that, can you give us a little bit of background about how did you get where you are today?
1: Okay, so I kind of cut my teeth working on Senator Mike Lee's campaign when he first ran in 2009. He was, you know, a nobody and there were several candidates, but at the time I was more of a constitutionalist and Mike was going around the state. You know preaching the Constitution basically this was kind of right during the Tea Party era and there was a lot of passion about that um, here in Utah there's a lot of kind of support and respect for the Constitution so it was a winning message and I liked what I was hearing so I signed on with him and um, quickly became jaded to federal politics and seeing that that wasn't really the avenue for change that I was hoping for I had become increasingly libertarian um, I kind of bounced around a few organizations, including the 10th Amendment Center, which is a great group.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I headed up uh, one of their state chapters for a little while, um, and before long figured out that there was really no home for me. I needed to build my own, and so uh, started Libertas in 2011, and we've been <clears throat> excuse me, we've been at it ever since, and uh, we've been growing, and we've changed dozens of laws. It's been very fulfilling, and a number of the laws that we change are you know, first in the nation, uh, really pioneering stuff that uh, is moving the needle in the direction of freedom, so we've been having a great time.
0: Well, that's fantastic, and one of those laws that I'm familiar with and is really something that is close to me is the Kratom Consumer Protection Law, and I believe Utah became the first state to pass that, and in Georgia, where I'm I'm at, I've actually uh, testified in front of the, the legislature and also in front of a Senate committee on it about keeping Kratom legal, and Georgia's mm-hmm. going to be passing that bill soon. Did you have any involvement in that or that, or did you um, work on that bill?
1: No, I didn't uh, work on that one, um, however, it was kind of interesting because we've been behind the movement for medical marijuana in Utah for about five years, and uh, just this past year, uh, we were able to get a ballot initiative. On the ballot, it passed. Uh, we then negotiated a little bit of a compromise that made some of the opponents happy and locked in place a really solid medical marijuana program now that's not just going to be attacked year after year by the opponents. And, um, and it was kind of interesting because when that legislator came and did the Kratom bill, he was couching all of his presentation in terms of uh, medical marijuana, basically saying this is not medical marijuana, this is not get you high, this is not what we're talking about. But he ended up taking kind of a very similar regulatory path in terms of like, hey, we want to make sure that it's inspected, that it's tested, that people know what they're getting, um, that there's no, you know, harsh chemicals and, you know, fertilizers and like whatever weird stuff in there. Um, And so it's kind of interesting that the two were kind of related enough that he connected them that way to what we had worked on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he kind of ran with it himself and uh, it sailed through.
0: That's that's fantastic. I think that medical freedom or health freedom is something that a lot of people are very concerned about. Just to give you a little background on myself, I've been chronically ill and in chronic pain for 30 years. It started when I was 11. Mm. I had ulcerative colitis, had 20 surgeries, 50 hospital stays. And so wow. I think that medical freedom is something that is not talked about enough. But with medical marijuana, I think that's really opened the door for people to see that there is this huge regulatory body that's preventing individuals from accessing the tools that God or, or if you will, nature has provided for man.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are, are waking up to that and, and certainly conservative states even like mine in Utah, um, getting on board with that, uh, specifically with medical marijuana has been interesting because it's been very much kind of a national conversation and a lot more people have been willing to openly share their stories you just did kind of where i think before there was kind of some stigma and people kind of quietly suffer and keep it personal but i think as more people are being willing to open to talk about the destructiveness of pharmaceuticals and the you know option of of uh natural alternative treatments that are working for them i mean even getting into like you know mdma and mushrooms and all this kind of stuff where they're doing some really interesting research right now for uh, mental health type issues, especially. So I think the stigma is kind of fading away as more people are willing to be open about it and talk about uh, what they've been doing. And, and that makes me a little hopeful for the future on, on this issue.
0: Well, that's fantastic. It's imp- I think you're right on the nose with the, the conservative states because Georgia falls in with that. I think Georgia and Utah have a lot of similarities. Uh, I think religion is still an important part of Georgia as well as with Utah. Do you think that more people are open to the ideas of individual liberty because they do have that strong sense of community that's provided by their religious communities? Or do you think that there's other reasons why Utah in particular is leading the way in a lot of these issues?
1: That's a good question. You know, I think certainly compassion comes into it. And when we were pushing the medical marijuana effort, we definitely latched onto that and kind of cultivated that in terms of getting people to uh, recognize that their personal compassion and empathy for others translates to allowing them the freedom to use medical marijuana. And so recognizing and, and giving a nod to the fact that this you know highly religious, social conservative type people are going to trend much more, you know, compassion and so forth and wanting to do what's right and wanting to help those in need. And so we're able to kind of connect the dots for them and say, well, if you really feel that way, as you claim you do, then, here's the right you know policy approach to take and so i think you know talking about human behavior and everything it's very mixed people come at this from different approaches and have different biases but writ large yeah i think we were able to use that kind of cultural identity to our advantage in working on the policy
0: now what is the current status of medical marijuana in utah were you able to get anything passed during the, the current session
1: yeah, so we passed a ballot initiative in Utah uh, past November, and then a month later, we uh, the legislature was called into a special session to uh, basically amend what the voters had put in place. So I was kind of the lead negotiator to um, listen to what the op- opposition didn't like about the ballot initiative that we passed because the worry was that they would just come and kind of gut it. In Utah, as in many states, there's nothing that protects the ballot initiative. Some states, it's kind of locked down. The legislature can't touch it for some years. In Utah, that's not the case. So we knew that they were going to come at this with knives because they really didn't like it. And so uh, we sat around a table for over 140 hours, I think, just talk, 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 negotiate, negotiate. It was kind of crazy. So we ended up with a kind of a compromise that still got us like 85, 90 percent of what we wanted. And um, and and then the legislature did a special session to pass that amended version in December. So it's been just a few months. The regulators are very much, you know, in the trenches of getting the program up and running, sending out the RFPs, working on the licenses, and all What's that stuff. What's
0: the RFPs? What what does that stand
1: for? So the RFP is a request for proposals. So mm-hmm. in most medical marijuana states, uh, they have this seed to sale tracking system to monitor where the marijuana goes and all this kind of stuff, and So that's a piece of software that the state now is basically saying, hey, vendors, who wants to do this? You know, you can now bid on it. So that part kind of takes a while. So it'll be about another year before the industry is set up here in Utah, but they do have legal protections right now so that even though they have to get their cannabis from the street or from a dispensary in another state, they have legal protections to use it while they're waiting for the industry to come online. So for a conservative state like Utah especially, um, and we're going to see this soon. I think with a lot more of the Bible Belt states and, and uh, conservative red states around the country, it's a big culture shift for, for people to get on board with legalizing marijuana to any degree. So what I'm excited for, especially beyond just the patient freedom, is the ripple effect of kind of the cultural, political um, inclinations that this might influence or cause so that people are more open minded to things that their tradition has kind of steered them away from.
0: I think you're exactly right, and I think the idea that we are that people individuals are allowed to experiment on themselves basically and find what works best. Um, I do not fit inside the traditional medical system you know I've had to look outside of that for for different solutions and I, CBD oil I think is a perfect example of that the growing trend on that. But I also think that THC is an important part of medical marijuana, that those two compounds working together, they have a synergistic effect that if you're just taking CBD, I don't think you get the full effect of what the plant offers.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the hard challenge with that is, is you know, exactly what you just mentioned is true. However, the lay voter, the lay politician does not understand these things. And taking the time to get them to understand the nuance and whatever it is, it's, it's lost on a lot of people. And so I think you have to find the right way to message that so that people who aren't going to learn about the synergistic effect of cannabinoids or the endocannabinoid system that our bodies naturally have or all these other really amazing things, you got to focus in on what's the core message that's going to resonate with them in the three seconds of attention span they're going to give you. That's the hard thing I think with for this campaign that we've just now gone through is finding the way a way to reach people in a way that they're going to it's going to catch their attention. It's going to motivate them to change their behavior. That's tough.
0: That, that is difficult. What were the main objections to medical marijuana that you guys ran into during those hundreds of hours of negotiations?
1: Um, slippery slope towards recreational marijuana. That's the biggest thing in a conservative state like Utah. And um, the idea that you know this could lead to, to recreational use was just abhorrent to our opposition. That was the thing that they were most nervous about. Um, and so basically we had to put up additional guardrails just to make sure that those who got this were the ones supposed to get it, that it wouldn't be, you know, diverted into the black market, all of those things to make sure that this was like a legit, tightly regulated medical program. And that's how we finally got the opposition to kind of join us at the table and sign off on this resulting proposals that we protected kind of the core of what we wanted but we put up those really big guardrails just so that they would have reassurances that this was not just kind of some loosey-goosey program that was medical right but that a lot of people were recreationally using it and claiming you know to have pain when they actually didn't and things like that so um you know that's tough but you know from my vantage point i, I never uh, hid the fact that i support uh legalizing marijuana and and they would always you know they frame it in their way like oh you support the you know Recreational marijuana said, well, I don't like that word, you know, and and that's not that's not the vantage point that I approach to me The proper question is is it right to incarcerate someone and and use violence against them and make them pay the government Just because they're sitting in their basement ingesting a substance that you disagree with Certainly if they're driving under the influence or selling to kids or like any of those other things we can address those those are problems Uh, Of That I have no concern However, just you know, bringing violence against someone who's sitting in his basement having a good time, whether that's from alcohol or marijuana or Netflix or having sex or the internet or you know whatever someone is doing to get their endorphins going, um, that's none of my business as long as they're not doing it. So people have a hard time combating that and saying, "Yes, we should use violence against you know someone who's using marijuana in their basement." But at the end of the day, that's the policy that they're calling for. So I never hid the fact in these discussions that. I support that proposal, but I, I or that outcome. But I did reassure them that you know this is Utah. That's not happening anytime soon. We're not going to be pushing for it. Um, and so with that, they were comfortable enough to move forward and, and negotiate with us.
0: Do you think that it is a natural plant that that is a big part of why the more conservative states? Do you think that's a selling point for people that it is um, a gift from God, basically? You know, if you if you believe in God and the religious aspect of it, I think it should be celebrated personally. You know that we do have an endocannabinoid system, that we do have receptors for these different plants, that you can mm-hmm. take them in. You know, because life is suffering ultimately, and the more tools we have to eliminate the suffering, I think is a is a good thing.
1: So I wish that were the case um, in our. Um neck of the woods. You would think in a highly religious area that that would be the case. And and we definitely tried to evoke that type of messaging, but it didn't really resonate. People didn't really latch onto this idea because God had provided uh, for this plant. That wasn't something that persuaded people. It wasn't, which was odd because, you know, sometimes we would use that argument. People would come back and say, oh, God also provided the poppy plant and that's created the opioid crisis. And do you really think we should have recreational heroin and you know, medical heroin. And I'm like, okay, well, I do. actually. For, <laughs> right, exactly. So a topic for another day. Right. But that, you know, the, it didn't really resonate with them, because they would immediately go towards, well, there's all sorts of other horrible things that grow. Should we allow sure. people to, you know, is it a good idea to do that? So that that argument was tough for us. And we kind of veered away from that people, I found were more interested in knowing that, some smart person, lab coat, research scientist had given its blessing. They didn't really uh, care that it was a natural plant. They just wanted to know that it was safe. And the biggest hurdle that we had was, well, this isn't FDA approved. So why should people be able to use it? You know, if this is really medicine, let's treat it like medicine and have it follow the same path as, you know, all the other uh, pharmaceuticals and the other medicine that we do. And so that part was tough, and that that was kind of our main um, sticking point in people's minds that we had to overcome to win them over, uh, which was explaining why this is never gonna go through the FDA and and why people, why we should create this separate track outside the FDA. It seems like people have been very um, acclimatized, right, to the current pharmaceutical industrial complex and diverting anything outside of that blows their minds and they don't understand why we would do that if we have this like safe proven track record that they find comfort in, because some smart person has given their blessing, therefore, oh good, I can use it now.
0: Right, exactly, and we've actually had Dr. Mary Ruert on, she was in the pharmaceutical industry for 20 years, and she talked about the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA approval process, that in 1962, the FDA went from purely making sure people weren't getting poisoned with medicine and food, to actually with efficacy, and so those trials and the statistical significance that they use is actually deeply flawed, and the, the conclusions that they come up to, I don't believe, are in our best interest a lot of the times.
1: Yeah, I agree, and, and it's kind of like the Bastia, that which is seen and that which is not seen. It's very right. easy to see the drugs they do approve. We don't see the drugs that uh, that they don't approve, that they slow roll, that could be helping and a lot of people saving a lot of lives, the medical devices that aren't on the market because of the FDA, the, the innovation that could have been happening, but for the fact that Innovators were discouraged to even try because they knew that they didn't have 10 million bucks to get through the process, so they just chose a different life path. You know, there's all these things we don't see when it comes to medical innovation and healthcare freedom and everything else that the current process has probably uh, inhibited, and and that's just something that <clears throat> is not in front of people, and so they don't contemplate it.
0: And she actually uh, talked about that legislation, especially medical legislation, is a form of experimentation on humans without consent. She actually Mm. uses like the Nuremberg Laws to to break that down, which is really fascinating. And she actually puts a number on the number of people who've died. She's come up with up to 5 million people who've died because of the FDA approval process. And like you just talked about, the drugs that got slow rolled or didn't come out at all.
1: Wow, that's sad.
0: It is, definitely. And so the idea of comfort, I think, is a real important part that people want to feel comfortable with these type of ideas. Now, what did finally get you past that point where it's going to be on that separate track? Was it the safeguards Mm -hmm. that you talked about? And what specifically were those safeguards? Because I know Georgia right now, medical marijuana is kind of stalled. It seems like it's lost its steam in a lot of places. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important that uh, we hear from you how you guys were successful.
1: Yeah, I think the model that we ended up coming up with uh, provided a lot of comfort in the minds of very socially conservative people. They ultimately signed off on it. Uh, We're one of the few states where the state medical associations signed off. Usually they are opponents or at best neutral. Um, And so I think ultimately it is, at least in in part, a model that other conservative states uh, could look to if they're struggling to get a broad program. Part of the challenge that we had was that our opponents really didn't like the fact that patients were on their own to kind of go shopping if you will at a dispensary right. that didn't really feel medical like the the they call it the the triangle of care I think is what it's called and you've got the physician and the pharmacist and the patient you know in this triangle figuring out the patient's health care together and um, one of our opponents was is a pharmacist and so he kind of came to it from this perspective and so wanted to steer things in that direction under our ballot initiative it was just like every other state dispenser you walk into it you know say i'll take one of those i'll take one of those and i'll take one of those and it's it's very almost like recreationally medical right and i i mean you and i probably are totally fine with that i, I certainly am i think Me patients too. are in control of their health care so they should be able to a- access whatever they want mm-hmm. um but to to the other side that didn't feel at all medical it just felt like you were going shopping you know and sure you had your medical need and medical card but then it was almost like quasi recreational purchasing and use because there was no guidance, there was no prescription, there was no none of that. So what we ended up coming up with was a model where you go into your doctor and you you know check you know Connor has a qualifying condition, here's your card, and if the physician wants to, they can specify some dosing suggestions like, hey, I think you ought to try you know let's start you with an oil, three drops a day, five milligrams, you know come back in a couple of weeks, let's see how that goes, and we can change it up. The, that's completely optional under the law, and most doctors won't do it because this is a Schedule One substance, and so physicians are unlikely to jeopardize their DEA license yeah. to, to get involved in dosing. But we at least wanted to create the structure so that if a physician wanted to do that, they could explore doing that. So if they don't do that, which is likely the case for most of them, then they'll go to the the patient goes to the dispensary, which is under our law required to employ a pharmacist. Oh, wow. um, pharmacists are state licensed; they're not federal license. It's actually the the pharmacy as an institution, uh, the traditional pharmacy that has a DEA license. So the individual pharmacist, um, if they go work at our dispensary, they are not threatened with losing a license because they don't have one. Hmm. Um, It's the institution, of the pharmacy that does. So we, our dispensaries will then employ a pharmacist who will then say, okay, Connor, your doctor didn't give you any dosing recommendations. Let's figure this out together and let's start you on a you know, <clears throat> topical that you'll use once a day, use that for a couple of weeks. And then if that's not working for you, come back and let's have you purchase something else. And so then you kind of have the guidance of at least a medical provider in um, the, the, the dispensary who's going to kind of give you some guidance. Now, if you're a smart patient who's been using cannabis for 10 years and you know more than they do, then, you know, certainly you just go to them and say, hey, this is what works for me. Can you just sign up on that? And these are pharmacists employed by dispensaries who have an economic interest in moving a lot of product to patients. So these pharmacists are going to be fired if they're like, no, I don't think you should you know, buy that. They're going to be very lenient, of course, right, right. by virtue of the business model to say, yeah, let's get you what you want slash need. Um, and, and ultimately, it was that model. I mean, there was a lot of other potpourri around the sides that uh, went into the negotiations. But getting towards that model where there was more medical providers involved uh, gave a lot of comfort. And so when I go buy my things at the dispensary, they put that in the system of what I bought so that when I go back to my doctor to get my card renewed, I can have a conversation with my doctor and he's like, Oh, Hey, I saw you were, you know, it says here you were trying this. And then you tried this, tell me about it, what worked, and the benefit in the opponent's mind is that by creating that feedback loop so that the doctor is seeing what Connor is using and talking to Connor about it that the doctors are going to gain more knowledge about cannabis, where right now they're largely ignorant. Mm -hmm. And so the the goal in their mind is that that increases knowledge and awareness and comfort level over time um, so that that just continues to increase rather than a doctor just saying, hey, Connor, here's your recommendation, see you later, and then you go outside of the system and do your own thing. That doesn't provide the trickle-up benefit to getting that feedback loop and so we were okay with that enough to sign off on that negotiation. And that's ultimately, I think, what brought a lot of them over to to our side.
0: I got you. Well, that makes sense. I like the idea that it's voluntary though, that you know the pharmacist is involved, but at the same time, the patient is still the one making the decisions. I think that's something that's been really forgotten in all of these medical discussions, is that the individual still owns themselves, and so self ownership right. is important? Did that concept come up, and how do people counter the idea that you do own yourself, which I firmly believe?
1: Um, no, it didn't really come up. I mean, as strongly as I believe that, we had to be very careful about like broad philosophical conversations and right. you know evoking principle because you know that can kind of just get you dismissed as a fringe person and you know whatever, and and for The opposition, you know, they're not going to be persuaded by some highfalutin principle and they're not very philosophical people. So we always had to approach this in more pragmatic terms with them, even though those principles were the were guiding what uh, what we were doing. We didn't so much explicitly bring them up to our opponents because we've never felt like that was the appropriate thing to do to actually persuade them to move Mm -hmm. um, and come over our way. And so, yes, kind of behind the scenes, those were the principles that motivated us, but it wasn't so overt that we were trying to like beat them over the head with our principles. We were more trying to find where they were and then figure out what argument or what position would kind of move them a step or two in our direction.
0: I think that's great. I think the more discussions we have like that, the better. Uh, I've been reading Herbert Spencer's first principles lately, and he talked about the idea of looking at the other side and figuring out why they believe what they believe, because there's a kernel of truth, even in like insane ideas, even Mm -hmm. in the opposing ideas, there's a kernel of truth. And so the idea that more information is gathered by the dispensaries and given to the doctors i think that is going to build the knowledge base and i think that's what prohibition really destroys it destroys human wisdom it destroys the experimentation and the information that could otherwise be shared with other human beings that's exactly how we've learned for the last two hundred thousand years
1: yeah i i agree i mean i think ultimately whenever you ban something it just pushes it into the black market and look where we're at today with cannabis right like we've lost decades worth of medical research that maybe we would understand the endocannabinoid system far greater and have all sorts of knowledge about, oh, hey, Connor, you have X condition, you know, X variety, You your uh, you know body has these other issues going on. Based on the research we've done, we know that this uh, ratio of CBD to THC is what's going to be more likely to give you the relief you need. We don't have any of that right now. It's, it's very much patient experimentation trying to find what works, We've lost out on a lot of wisdom that I, I think is the direct result of the criminalization of cannabis that's been very unfortunate. It's, it's been a net negative, I think, for the public, not only in terms of lost medical research, but in the criminal justice approach to cannabis possession and the overcriminalization and filling prisons and all sorts of other garbage that comes with it. Um, it it's been a big problem, and it's, it's heartening, I think, to finally see us moving in the right direction.
0: That's great. That is great. I've had a lot of doctors on the show talking about the medical system. There's a lot of doctor burnout going on and a lot of doctors are moving away from like third party payers and getting back to the idea that individuals should be able to make their own healthcare choices and doctors are really consultants. And I think that's what Mm -hmm. the medical marijuana program that you guys are doing. It's getting back to that idea where the individual is ultimately responsible for their behavior and it's not in that, that kind of that, um, that health fiduciary type of responsibility is not placed upon the doctor it's the individual who's making the ultimate choice
1: yeah i think for too long doctors and politicians have been perceived as gods right yes. or demigods mm-hmm. and and we defer to their authority and their wisdom and you know I, I i'm glad to see that change right Where the patients at the steering wheel right we're in the driver's seat and uh and and we can consult with those who are our servants right doctors are a really Uh, supposed to instead be serving us and and consulting with us and helping us guide ourselves in our own path Um, And and you know the quicker we can get there I think the better because I think it's the best uh, option for human flourishing
0: now How much do you think that it had to do with personal testimonies? I've recently you know testified I talked about that with kratom and I found Mm -hmm. that when you talk directly with your your uh, representative or your senator, especially at the state level that mm-hmm. people really respond to human stories. That these are people too, and that deep down, I think they want—they're trying to do the right thing. Now, what was your personal um, experience with this, with having people testify about their experiences? Because I saw on your website that uh, rethinking medical cannabis, and they had mm-hmm. some powerful testimonies, especially that—that uh, that mom with the young kid who talked about, you know, if they had medical cannabis for all these years. Who knows how much better their life would have been?
1: Stories are essential. We can cite all the data we want. We can, to your earlier point, talk about all the principles we want. But those things don't really move people like a story does. Uh, Our minds resonate emotionally a lot more than they do logically, even for logical thinkers like myself. And at the end of the day, it's very hard to argue against stories like these. Um, And that's what breaks down these walls of resistance. And so you have to have the data. You have to have the principles. You Mm -hmm. have to have you know, the the accurate uh, proposals and good policy. But to actually move the needle, you have to do storytelling. Now, in our case, we had a bit of storytelling fatigue in the sense that we were bringing patients up to the Capitol, not just to testify in committee formally and, you know, whatever, but meeting legislators one-on-one, sitting down with them knee-to-knee, talking about their stories, um, lobbying them directly. And uh, we had experienced some fatigue from the sense that legislators like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. You know, there's a sob story everywhere, I've heard enough of them, I'm good. Okay. And they started to kind of hold off on not wanting to interact with patients. So patients would sit out there waiting for half an hour, 45 minutes, one hour, waiting for you know legislators to come out of the, the chamber to talk to them because there was that resistance forming. So at the same time, we were concurrently going to the media because con- the media would just lap up, especially in a conservative state, anything uh, having to do with uh, medical marijuana. Um, the news media loved it. So we were doing press conferences and we were giving exclusive interviews to different stations and we were doing podcast interviews and radio and inter- like all this kind of stuff to share those stories as widely and as often as we could, because that heartened other people to share their stories around the dinner table or at the office, you know, water cooler or whatever. Um, and and it created a ripple effect, right? People felt emboldened to be sharing stories. And that is what really moved people. That's what's moved things nationally. So we benefited in Utah from that national landscape changing. Um, and then here in our own state as well, the same exact thing. It's just you got to find the stories. You got to find patients who are willing to be open about what they're doing. And, and we had, I mean, especially, we had several patients who were willing to openly admit that they were illegally using cannabis and that it was helping them. And the more public they were, the more insulated they were from any action. Mm-hmm. In fact, we did one event where we sat a patient down right next to the county prosecutor. Um, and then we had a politician and someone in law enforcement. And so we were talking about the the issue. This was before the ballot initiative uh, was being done. And and you know, the direct question to the prosecutor was, you have this patient sitting next to you right now. She's admitted to openly using an illegal substance, legally possessing it. Is this someone you want to... Prosecute? He's like, no, I, I I don't want to prosecute her, right? He was supportive of fixing the law so that legitimate people could, you know, use this. So so people who are willing to be brave, right, and share openly that, you know, you can get into like stunts of people smoking it on the lawn of the Capitol and stuff like that. I think that creates a bad taste. Right. You know, but people discreetly, respectfully, compassionately saying, I suffer, I use it, it's helped me, you know, and and being willing to share their stories very bravely that. That emboldened a lot of people. That changed a lot of people's minds.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a great point. I read a quote recently that uh, that said, it was about marketing in general and sales. It said, um, he, who, he who communicates best wins. And I think that's something that the people on the, the liberty and freedom side are getting better at. They're getting better at uh, the storytelling and getting better at actually organizing. And there's a yeah. lot of libertarians out there who still feel, and I was like this at one time, that dealing in the political process at all is a corrupting influence and maybe even um, giving sanction to the way the system works. What, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Because you guys are doing it on two different fronts, the legislation front and also the education front. What do you what do you ta- tell people who, especially on the side of freedom, who are basically apathetic towards politics and lawmaking?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. What I typically tell them, because I hear that a lot, is I get it. Right. I, I don't judge you. I actually, in some ways, am jealous of you because <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the trenches here and this kind of stuff. And it would be nice to completely disengage and just disregard it, you know. And so I, I somewhat envy people who have come to that uh, decision. And, um, you know, the other side of me says, well, I, I think that if no one... Jumps in the fray to make a difference then that difference will never happen and uh, The people will be the worst for it had had my team and I not gotten involved in medical marijuana uh, the law would not have changed at all and uh, Thousands tens of thousands of patients would not have the freedom that they now do. Yeah, so it's a, it's a regulated freedom There's lots of silly laws, you know built around this thing that we did but hey way better than we did before and so Um, that's the struggle that I have is that I completely get people who think that the state is corrupt and that there's no hope and that they should just go build their business and, and, you know, work on their family and all this kind of stuff. And I totally get that. Um, I think everyone has a different path in life. You know, not everyone has to be deeply involved in politics. This is my path. This is what I'm called to. This is what I'm well suited for. Um, and so to the extent I can, I'm going to rally people around me to join me and help and. Donate, you know, give us resources so we can do our job and all that kind of stuff. So um, there are some people who have animosity towards apathetic people and feel that they're wrong and, you know, that they're kind of summertime soldiers or I guess not even soldiers. But uh, and I used to be that way a little bit when I was getting very involved, it frustrated me that other people weren't seeing what I am and that we weren't willing to step forward. But I've come to peace with it um, and I feel okay with it. And, you know, to the extent possible, sometimes those people will kick in 50 bucks and say, hey, you know, I don't do anything what you're doing. But, you know, I saw that you would made that difference. So good on you and keep it up. Um, so, you know, I, I'm at peace with it and I think everyone has their different path and, you know, would it be a perfect world if every liberty minded person were fully engaged and everything? Hey, you know, yeah, we'd marshal a lot more forces and do a lot more good, but, you know, we believe in the non-aggression principle, so I'm not going to go and, you know, beat those people up to, to get involved. Um, I want to use persuasion and, and long suffering as, as, much as I can to, uh, show them a path and give them an opportunity to wake up a little bit and, and activate themselves um, and we've done that with a lot of people from time to time, depending on the issue. So um, everyone's different, and, and I'm just at a point where I'm at peace with that.
0: That's a, that's a great point, because I've I've been uh, more of an anarcho-capitalist when I was younger. I think that's a natural thing for for folks who really get into the liberty movement. They they they, yeah. they, they go to the extreme. And philosophically, I'm still a voluntarist, you know, a radical individualist, if you will. But at the same mm-hmm. time, that I know that. Uh, suffering, like you talked about, is happening every day because of these terrible laws that are on the books, and that yeah. it's only by getting involved that that these things do change. Because inside the the, the capital, there aren't people talking about the ideas of freedom.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it does require at least someone to stand up. And you know, the the beautiful thing about this is it doesn't require everybody. I mean, we've been able to accomplish a lot with very Very few people and scarce resources. And I guess the argument goes that if we had more people, more resources, we could do more good. But, um, you know, I think we're doing all right. And and, uh, you know, I think it just requires the right people stepping forward. Um, And at some point, I think other people will come to a point in their lives where they get kind of triggered or awoken or, you know, activated and uh, find a reason to get involved. Um, But, you know, that's how life goes, I suppose.
0: What do you tell people who think that it's impossible to make change? Because you guys have proved that it's—it is very possible to make change, but it takes effort and time. What—what what do you? There's a lot of people out there who say, "Well, it's a lost cause." The yeah. Federal Reserve, the war on drugs, the empire at the federal level is impossible to ever change.
1: Yeah, I mean, I—I I started politics, as I pointed out, at the federal level, uh, working on Senator Lee's campaign. All my Attention was national. It was the issues that you just raised, right? Ron Paul revolution and all the big, you know, congressional stuff going on, the wars, the banking, the monetary policy, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, when we're talking about those issues, I probably agree almost 100 percent. I think um, the national government is a lost cause. I think um, things are heading in a direction where we're probably past the point of recovery. If if the public will change right now. And we wanted to pay down the debt and we wanted to, you know, scale back the wars and we wanted to fix all the problems we could. It's not that we're so far gone that, you know, even if the public will were there, we couldn't turn things around. I just don't see at all in the next several decades any substantive shift that is going to stave off, you know, financial collapse, right, Uh, continued empire and all these things. So I personally feel like the national government is a lost cause And it's just continuing to do all the same things with little variances, depending on who's president and all this kind of stuff. But like 98 percent is all the same. It's for that reason that I work at a state and local level where we actually can affect change, where people getting involved can actually make a difference. Now, on the other hand, you know, part of me feels sometimes like we're just rearranging chairs on the Titanic, that even though we're making a lot of improvements at the state level, we are all subject to everything happening nationally. And if that is heading off of a cliff, we're going to be taken with it, even though we're kind of, you know, cleaning our chairs along the way and and rearranging them. So um, I, I guess I come at it from a vantage point that there are hard days ahead and, and, and you know, but looking at history, we always get through it. There's always a recovery. Mm -hmm. There's always a cleansing. There's always a renewal. And um, I want to be positioned as good as possible for that recovery it's going to suck to get through whatever challenges come maybe there's blowback and there's nuclear war and there's world war three and there's who knows what you know it's just cyber warfare instead i don't know what's coming but i want to get my affairs in order and help my neighbors do the same through state and local policy and financial preparedness and all this kind of stuff so that we are best positioned for the long term so a lot of what we do is about this policy and that policy but the broader vision of what we're trying to do is um, get our own affairs in order as well as possible so that we are positioned to uh, survive whatever comes in the decades to come.
0: I think that's a great point about resilience and that you build it from an individual point and a community standpoint and up to the state level. And you talked about the Tenth Amendment Center, and we're hoping to have Michael on soon uh, to talk Mm -hmm. more about that. And do you see... I know states' rights, people, you know, that that term has some very negative connotations to it. But at the same time, do you see that, that there is a changing tide as far as states choosing to go against federal law?
1: Uh, You know, it depends on the issue. I think medical marijuana has awakened a lot of people to that. You know, even when Trump became president, the left started talking about secession, Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, when that had been like a, you know, four-letter word for years when the Tea Party type folks were talking about it. How unpatriotic and you're treasonous and, oh, it's President Trump now. Let's let's carve off half of California, you know, and let's, you know, so um It's interesting. I think people are very, they have situational ethics a lot of times. And so depending on the the trends and the tides, uh, they're going to change what's happening. So the hard part, like when I was at the 10th Amendment Center, even now where we do a lot of 10th Amendment kind of stuff, is even though we might have consensus on something like medical marijuana and going against the feds, you know, on that issue, the hard part is translating that into the next issue so that people are consistent on the 10th Amendment issue rather than just focused on whatever random topic you're talking about for that policy. That's the hard thing that I found is connecting those dots for people so that they understand this is really a 10th amendment topic. Um, when for them, it's just in that case, Oh, it's just medical marijuana. Let's deal with that. And yeah, the feds don't like it and whatever, whatever, but they kind of isolate it into their own box. Mm -hmm. Um, the hard part for us is extrapolating that and saying, well, no, the principle underlying that was, you know, we have the self sovereignty to be able to do this, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I've found it very difficult to get politicians to be willing to take that next step with you and apply consistently that principle to some other policy.
0: That makes sense because the medical marijuana issue has been going on for for a long time with California starting back in the 90s, and so there's decades of history behind that, pushing yeah. that issue um, outside of the the Tenth Amendment argument. You know that yep. they've actually shown that it can be done. Now with that side with the legislation side and the idea that, you know, maybe the, the federal, um, government is a lost cause and there will be a renewal eventually. And I think that's where your books, the Tuttle twins come in is that mm. you're educating, uh, they're targeted for kids five to 11. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And then you're teaching some amazing concepts. How did you get started with that and what's been the response with those books?
1: So the Tuttle Twins books were born of the idea that I wanted to – so I, I do this full-time. I'm a full-time freedom fighter. I run a think tank. And I would go home and try and think, like, how do I explain what I do to my kids, right? I'm not a firefighter. I'm not a salesman. I'm not a whatever. Like, how do you talk about property rights to a five-year-old, right? How do you tell your seven-year-old what economic liberty is? And, and so um, I went on Amazon <clears throat> looking for books that would teach these types of ideas, and there was nothing – um, which was you know, frustrating. And then I realized, you dolt. You know, you talk about entrepreneurialism all the time. Here's an opportunity. So I uh, teamed up with a friend of mine, Elijah, who's our illustrator. He also had young children and approached it from the same vantage point. And uh, so we created our first book just as a test. We had no idea if there was a market. We had no idea what the response would be. It was just a labor of love to kind of create uh, this single book. And we both thought like, Uh, The structure of the Tuttle Twins is that we base each of our children's books on an original uh, classic free market text. So we kind of take the core principles of that original book, wrap it in a fun story, and now kids are learning about those topics. So for Elijah and I, we figured if we only do one book, if this flops, if nothing happens, uh, what book was most influential for us? And it was The Law by Frederick Bastiat. So we created that book, uh, marketed it a little bit, and it took off. really well and and surprised us both and so that was the market signal that like hey there's something here what's well, been really interesting now that we're nine books in you know we've got books based on hayek uh ayn rand murray rothbard frederick Bastiat, we got the creature from jekyll island you know henry Hazlitt, all these other you know classic freedom fighter uh, thinkers and uh so we're nine books in now we're working on our tenth and what's really interesting is the liberty movement is only so big Right. Like at first it was like, Hey, parents and grandparents, you've read the law by Frederick Bastiat. Now get the version for your children. And and a lot of people did. What I quickly found is the liberty movement is not as big as, you know, <laughs> we would hope for. Right. And so that market is kind of small. So we found uh, the next pivot was homeschoolers. They're always on the hunt for a curriculum, right. you know, and they're very kind of independent minded, even though they might not be libertarian per se. So we started marketing it a lot that way, and that was very receptive. But again, that market's kind of limited. What we've done in that time as the, as the success has grown is we just uh, market this to parents in general who want to teach their children time-tested values that the schools no longer do. And these parents, by and large, have never heard of any of those thinkers, the names of those people I rattled off. They would never pick up the law by Frederick Bastia. They're not in our network. They don't understand these ideas. But they do want their children to be well-rounded. Mm-hmm. They do want their children to learn about civics and economics and history and good principles, especially when you know the, their friend down the street or in their church group or in their homeschool co-op or whatever recommended these books and said, hey, my kids loved them. They learned a lot. So we've expanded the network. We've grown the pie. We've reached a ton of new children, but then also their parents, because what we're finding over and over again is that the parents will sit down to read with the kids. We get feedback from parents all the time that are like, I never learned any of that in school. Like, you know, how in the world did I miss that? My eight-year-old knows more than most, you know, 30-year-olds now. And and, and the parents are learning along because it's not a, a thick economic book. It's not an intimidating thing written in 1887 or whatever. Right. It's a fun, lighthearted book that it's a shared experience, you know, reading with their kids. And it's very non-threatening. And so their walls come down and they're willing to kind of absorb that new information. So it's been really fascinating because we targeted, you know, the marketing initially into very narrow segments, but we found that we can go very broad and reach entirely new people, which is the whole point. We don't want to just teach the rising generation of libertarians, (laughs) which, you know, their parents would probably already teach them these concepts at some point in the future. We want to reach new audiences and and we're now achieving that very exciting.
0: That's fantastic. I think the books are great, and I recommend everybody get those. I know you're uh, against a hard deadline here as far as time goes. What would you like to leave people with and as far as fighting for um, more freedom in the country and also where they can find your work? Because I think the is it Libertas or how do you say it? Libertas? We say
1: – yeah, we say Libertas, but a libertas. lot of people say Libertas. Okay.
0: Yeah, the Libertas Institute. I think. Do you have plans to model that and take that nationwide to different states? So that's
1: a good question. So you know, a lot of your listeners are like, "Hey, great, we heard about Utah, but why do we care? We don't live there." Mm-hmm. I would encourage your listeners to go to spn.org. That stands for State Policy Network, and that's kind of the umbrella organization for a lot of the libertarian, free market, conservative, state-based think tanks. So no, we're not going to expand beyond Utah. But every single state has a think tank, quote unquote, like us. You know, I would argue that none are like us, but, you know, they're, they're similarly focused on tax policy, education, freedom, property rights, you know, whatever. And some are very old, some are very new, some are more conservative, some are more, you know, libertarian. But you can go to the directory there and find your state and say, oh, what's the group in my state? Let's go check out what they're doing, see if I want to get involved, go to their events, you know, whatever. Um, That's going to be the way for your listeners to kind of clue into what's happening in their backyard and and how they might be able to get involved. Our website is libertusutah.org, where you can see some of the stuff that we've been doing. Uh, But again, that's just mostly for Utah. I would encourage uh, everyone to go to TuttleTwins.com. That's where they can find uh, the books, the children's books, uh, get some bonuses as well. Um, If you use the coupon 40, F-O-R-T-Y, you can get 40% off uh, the sale that we're doing right now. So great opportunity to pick up the books to your other question, though, as we wrap things up here um, about what, you know, message I would have for people about getting involved. My granddad uh, used acronyms all the time. Um, You know, I remember KTYL, he would say, and that was know that you're loved. And so he had all these acronyms. The one that sticks in my mind the most that has stayed with me forever is PPPG. It stands for persistence pays pretty good. And it was just one of his acronyms, and he just, you know, Connor, PPPG, and and it stuck. And as I've worked on this, as I've been involved, I have seen the inherent wisdom of PPPG. We see so many people who are interested in helping and want to do good, and you know, want to want to make a difference, but they peter out. They they can't sustain. They don't commit, right? They they are the summertime soldiers that uh, that Payne talked about. And um, that is the challenge I think we face. I think we we do good when we are persistent. We don't have to have a ton of money. We don't have to have a ton of connections. We just have to be engaged and involved continuously um, and that pays dividends. It's like the snowball effect that it just keeps getting bigger the further and further that it rolls. I started as a blogger. I didn't know anybody. I just blogged and that led to Mike Lee's team finding me and bringing me into that meeting which Introduced me to now Senator Mike Lee, who I have a good re- working relationship with. That opened doors to the 10th Amendment Center and others, which opened doors to starting my own group, which opened doors to writing books, which opened doors to speaking around the country. You know, people see, oh, look at what Connor's doing, or look at what so and so's doing, or whatever. And it's maybe it's intimidating, or they think I could never do that. I literally started out blogging in 2006 and 7, preaching to like four people. You know? I understand that feeling. Uh, every- <laughs> Yeah. Everyone's got to start somewhere. Right. But the important thing I think is persistence. You got to stay with it because it pays dividends. It's like it's like a savings program for the long term. Yeah. First year it's pennies, but that compounds over time and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We just got to stay with it. That is the most important message because I see people get burned out so easily, so quickly. And if only they would have stayed at it, they would have done great things. And so PPPG.
0: I love that. Thank you, Connor, for being on the show. And and thank you, everybody, for listening. And freedom is worth fighting for because it does matter in your everyday life that you might think that this is something that you can't make a difference with. But like Connor talked about, you can start with what you have, where you're at, and who knows where you'll be in 10 years from now. So thank you, Connor, for being on it and all your great work um, with the Think Tank and also with the Tuttle Twins. I I really love those books. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: And we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.